Are you ready to get into God's Word this morning? Nine o'clock, sir. We're ready to get in God's Word. I want to I share a message this morning that I have to tell on myself because in going through the book of Romans, Romans was one of the first books of the Bible as a kid I memorized. We were in a program, Denise and I were called, uh, it was called Bible Quiz, and we, we memorized uh, this entire book in the King James, and it's always had this special place in my heart. And there's parts of Romans that I've read so many times, I am tempted just to go right by. And last week we shared out of Romans chapter 5, and I thought, well, God, we've covered Romans chapter 5, the main points of it in there. Let's move forward, because this next part, God, is just basically telling us that you love us, and we know that. And I was praying, and on Tuesday morning, God goes, really? Do you really think people know that? Because if people know that I love them, their lives would be totally different than the way they're living them right now. And I got under conviction, and I backed up. So today we're going to look into Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. Let's pray together. Father, God, you're so good to us. Just as we sang this morning, Lord. God, your love is overwhelming, Father. We, we, we struggle to grasp it, God. But Lord, this morning, would you open our, our minds, our hearts, God, to, today to somehow be open, God, to, to embrace your love in a fresh, unique today way father lord that radically shifts our thinking our our heart our attitude god our service all that we do god because father you loved us god lord beyond what we can even imagine father so lord speak to us today god as we open your word i pray this in christ's wonderful name and everyone said amen amen you know growing up i was always amazed by uh by history and just very curious about things around the world because remember there was no internet back then so we had like encyclopedia britannica can i get a witness this morning and one of the things i I loved was what they called the seven wonders of the world right and and they were all these amazing places we read about in history like the great pyramids or the temple of diana or the hanging gardens of babylon and you know just these incredible places and you know truly every age kind of has their take on that as a, as a proud person that grew up in Texas around Houston, we had the eighth wonder of the world because it was the Astrodome, where AstroTurf came from. I mean, come on, it was awesome. But you know, if I were going to make a list of the seven wonders of the supernatural world, the first thing on the list would be simply this, God loves you. There, there is no greater statement than that that has been made in history. There's no more powerful truth than that that has ever been thought up by the philosophers or the scientists or the historians in our world. The fact that God loves us changes everything. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, which is kind of the theme verse today, it says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can we just say thank you, Lord, right there? You know, the thing is, we've heard this so much. Those of us who have been in church for a long time, those who maybe have come to Christ earlier in life, we've heard that so much that honestly we take it for granted. Oh yeah, God loves me. Sure, he lo- oh yeah, he loves me. And we, we don't fully embrace or I think understand what that does in our lives. And we especially don't understand what it meant when Paul said that. Because in that culture in Rome, in the, in the Greek culture of that day, the thought of a God that loved you was totally, totally foreign. The thought of a God you could come and and, and embrace was something they can't even imagine. You see, people feared their gods back then. They feared what would happen if Zeus got upset or, or if some other god just didn't like what was going on around them. And they lived in this awe, but it was not an awe like we have of God. It was an awe of, please don't kill me and somehow bless me. 
When Paul spoke this into that context, he was showing them there was a God who wants to show you his favor instead of you seeking to gain his favor. And it was literally mind-blowing to them. It was literally life-altering because everything to that point was, I've got to find a way to find the favor of God. I've got to find a way to get there to prove that somehow I'm worthy of that God's love. But when a Christian comes and bows the knee before the Lord and receives Christ as their Savior in the Lord, we will see in the passage today that there was nothing we brought to the table. There was nothing we came to that said, hey, we are worthy of what you're about to do, God, but God did it anyway. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Paul understood the love of God because his, the love of God transformed his life. And in, in the great prayer that was recorded into the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 3, verse 17 through 19, he said, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And what Paul was saying was, if we grasp it, if we, if we somehow understand how great the love of God is, it changes everything. It changes how we pray. It, it changes how we, how we live. It increases our faith. It, we, we live with a stable relationship with God. We're not living with this fear like, oh, today God loves us, tomorrow we're not so sure. It changes our outreach because how can we not tell other people about the great love we ourselves have received? But I, I, I really believe that sometimes we don't fully grasp it. And I know it's beyond comprehension, truly. I don't know that we'll ever understand totally the love of God until we get to heaven. However, Paul gives us great insight into how we know God loves us. Pick it up in verse 6 out of Romans 5. We're going to read down through verse 11, then we're going to go back in and pull the detail out, all right? He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified, we've been talking about that a lot, justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. A lot of scholars believe that this was Paul's commentary on John 3.16. A lot of scholars believe that this was his way of fleshing out that verse that you see at football games and, and, and almost every good Southerner can quote whether they love Jesus or not. For God so loved the world that he gave his only and one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life so here's what i want us to do today i want to give you three proofs of god's love for you and my prayer for you is this is that our hearts would be open our minds would be open that we would process it and let it get deep inside of us so three proofs out of the scripture that god loves you this morning the first proof is simply this we have to understand what he did we have to look at what he did to show us his love. His proof is the death of his own son. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, listen, we've got to own that. We've got to process that. We've got to get it into our spirit. We've got to know it, that he demonstrated his love for us when his son died for us. And I tell you, the proof of God's love for you is not a miracle. 
The proof of God's love for you is not that Jesus was, was born of a virgin. The proof of God's love for us was not his great sermons like the Sermon on the Mount uh, or his righteous life. The proof of God's love for us is he died for our sins. John 15, 13 says this, Greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And we are considered the friends of God. 1 John 4, 10 in the New Living Translation says this, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. The very thing that proves God's love, the very first proof today is it's just what he did for us. That he would die, he would send his son to die for your sins and for mine. The second thing is this. The, the second proof is not only what he did, but who he did it for. In fact, Paul gives us uh, about four classifications of, of us. He gives us a description that we don't really want to embrace, but it's true. We want to say, oh, that, that's the world, but it's us before Christ. The first thing is this. He died for the powerless. Romans 5, 6 says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Powerless, weak, without strength. We were utterly helpless. We were completely powerless. There was nothing we could do to save ourselves. We couldn't give enough money. We couldn't serve enough. We couldn't be nice enough. We couldn't be better than enough. Everything God did for us was in spite of us because we were powerless to save ourselves. I think it's interesting that that phrase starts with at just the right time. What, what does that really mean? Because God was from the beginning and knows the end. Why, why at that time? Why, why did Jesus come when, he, come when he came? Why did he come at that moment to save us? I think there's some logical thoughts to that i don't know that we know it perfectly but i think there's some things that that make a lot of sense if you think about it the roman empire was established at the time of christ so there was a common language in the known world which, which was greek there was a a road system there was the law so that the gospel could travel quickly throughout the area and go into all the known world i also believe that it was in that point of human history that humanity had absolutely proven that there was no way they could be good enough to earn what God did for us. There was no way they could prove themselves righteous enough to receive God's favor. They were powerless. Think about it. It had been 1,400 years since the Ten Commandments. 1,400 years of futility of man saying, oh, I can do that and only not do that. Oh, I can make that better than my neighbor. Oh, then, then I'm not as good as my neighbor. It was a 1,400 years of futility of man saying, I cannot be justified by the law because being a moral person wasn't working. Man also found out at that time that human wisdom couldn't save him. It was around 4 BC that, uh, that you had the great philosophers, the Greek scholars of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. They were all on the scene sharing their wisdom, but yet their wisdom could not save mankind. Today, can I tell you, we are still looking in the wrong places for salvation. We are still looking in the wrong places to justify us. Today, mankind looks at, looks at it through the, through the lens of government legislation or education that will somehow save man. But can I tell you, neither one of those will ever save man. You can't legislate righteousness. We just make nicer sinners. It doesn't work. You can't, you can't educate out the, the evil and the sin in man's heart. It, it, in that time, the philosophies of governance and, the, and education impact ours today. And even in that point, Caesar Augustus, in his own ego, in his own head, on their coins, he was listed as the savior of the world. But yet the empire doesn't even exist any longer. You see, while we were powerless, 
at just the right time, Christ died for us. There's a second category, and that is this. He said that he had died for the ungodly. This is, this is kind of like back in Romans chapter 1 again. We're like, oh, great, he's describing us again. Yes, he died for the powerless. He died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6 said, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, what, is, what does ungodly mean? Well, it means not like God. It means that he died where there was no reverence for him. He died for people that did not honor him. He died for people that did not seek him. In fact, they were pursuing evil. They were turning to evil. There was a profanity. We read about it in Romans chapter 1 that not only mocked God, but challenged God. And yet in the midst of that, God says, my son will die for you. My son will die for you that you'll be set free because you cannot set yourself free. It's interesting. In Genesis 1, we're told that we were made in the image of God. We all are. I mean, you're sitting next to someone made in the image of God. And when you think about that, there's, there's much about us that, that proves that. We have an eternal spirit. We're going to live forever somewhere, heaven or hell. There's, 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 there's a couple of destinations, but we are going to live forever. We have intellect, creative ability, and a capacity to commune with God. But as a result of the fall, we all fall short of the glory of God. There's not a one of us that came out of the womb righteous. There's not a one of us that walked on this earth whole. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. So God's glory on us wasn't destroyed, but it was terribly defaced. God only knew one way to bring us back, to come into that fullness of what it meant to be his children, to be the sons and daughters of God. And that was to send his one and only son because mankind was totally and still is totally ungodly. You say, well, Mike, wait a minute. I, I know some good people. Well, here's the problem with good people, okay? There's a real problem with good people. Not everyone is bad as they could be. Not everyone is as bad as they could be. Sometimes we do things that reflect the, the creation of God in us, just like the blind squirrel finds the nut a couple of times. You know, it's you know, broken clocks right twice a day. I mean, in our humanity, sometimes we do things that kind of look like God. But yet in those things, we still don't come close to worshiping God until we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. You see, people who don't know God worship a God of their own making. You and I did that before we came to know Christ. We created our own, our own thoughts, our own religion. It's about morality, or it's about better than, or it's about doing nice things. And we create this theology out of our own experience based on nothing but ourselves, and there's no way that saves us because there's no such thing as a naturally godly person. Christ died for us while we were powerless. Christ died for us while we were ungodly. Thirdly, he died for us while we were sinners. We don't like that term. But Romans 5, 7, and 8 says this, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. I mean, just look at those two examples. Here's a, here's a righteous person. A righteous person is someone who has a moral code. They, they have a standard they live by. And they keep it to the best of their abilities. They obey all the rules. They're, they're the kid that kind of goes through and you never notice them, right? Because they're just doing all the right things. But they never get out of their lane to love anybody besides themselves. Because their whole life is just based on being good. I think I know that person very well growing up he said very rarely will someone die for a righteous person you see you can be righteous and not good because a good person goes further they love people and they're known for their goodness generosity and niceness they are they're moral they're making a difference in the lives of others yet 
Their morality is not enough to save them. So in verse 8, he said, so God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can I tell you that God did not start loving you the moment you got saved? God loved you before you ever even thought of him. God loved you before your, your thoughts even came out to this understanding of who God is. He, he, he loved us while we were sinners, deep in our own selfishness, deep in our own way of doing life. That, that word sinner uh, in Romans, it's a, it's a term that, that's used in archery. It's, it's that understanding of someone with the, the bow and arrow and, and aiming at this target to say that target is what is right. And, and yet again and again and again, we, we miss the mark. And as I shared early in the teaching on Romans, it doesn't matter if we miss the mark by a centimeter or by a mile, we still miss the mark. And every one of us is caught up in that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if we're honest with ourselves, even in our morality, no matter what sense we have of right or wrong, we all betray what we know when we do that which we know is wrong. We'll, we'll even be like in the garden, did God really say that? Did he really command that? Are you sure that's what he meant in that? And, and we, we try to find as close as we can to live to the edge without just surrendering to God our whole lives. We're sinners, but God has saved us by his grace. So Paul's point was simply this. We bring nothing to the table before God, but yet he saved us. We were literally, we were literally serving the wrong kingdom. We were serving the wrong, the wrong person. We were serving the wrong... Uh, whole body before we came to christ we were serving satan according to god's word you're like mike you're getting personal now, you now you're saying we're serving satan well according to scripture pretty much we were look at this ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 it says you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world obeying whom we didn't think about that i just thought i was doing my own thing Obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. Folks, remind, I've taught this before, the unseen is greater than the seen. If we got a picture of what was going on around us this morning, it'd freak us out. There is so much more in the eternal than there is in the physical. Let me just, let's just flip scripture for a second. I want to, I want to prove this. Go, go to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Next one. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So when we talk about salvation being the greatest miracle ever, it is the greatest miracle ever because literally someone's blinded eyes have to open up. Someone, someone's blinded conscience has to open up. Someone does, we don't convince people to get saved. It's not a mental ascent. It's not here, let me show you some things. Go study that, make up your mind. No, there is an encounter with God where literally the blinders are taken off. They see the glory and the goodness of God. And like the rest of us, how could they not just go, God, thank you? Because while I was a sinner, you died for us. You see, you might die for a good person. Someone might die for a righteous person. But Christ died for us. While we were powerless, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners. And finally, if we hadn't really figured out the picture yet, uh, Paul said he died for us while we were enemies. Verse 10 of chapter 5. For if, while we were God's enemies, he didn't wait till we surrendered. Remember that. While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? I don't recall consciously being an enemy of God, do you? I really don't. But according to Scripture, in Romans 8, 7, he says the sinful nature 
That's what we are born into. The sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. It just never will. And so if our hopes are, well, my buddy's a good person. I'm hoping God will have mercy on him when it comes to that day. There is none righteous, no, not one. We need to know the love of God that saves us. So he proved it to us by, by what he did. He proves it to us by how he did it. And finally, he proved his love to us by how he relates to us. How he, how he relates to us in this life now. See, if he died and he did it for people like us, then verses 9 and 10 will show us now how he relates to us. In verse 9, he says this. Since we have, been now, since we have now been justified by his blood. Can I just time out for a moment? I don't want to assume we've gotten this. Go back to the definition, justified, real quick. Uh, justification is the act of God whereby he forgives the unsaved person's sin. Can we just say thank you right there? And imputes, credits, or assigns, whichever word works for you, to them the righteousness of Christ, when through faith they believe. So not only does he forgive our sins, he puts his righteousness on our account so that now, when anyone tries to look at our account, when Satan tries to accuse, when the enemy tries to destroy, God opens the book and says, all I see on their account is my son's righteousness go away. They are mine. I have made them mine. They couldn't do it, but I did that for them. So go back to verse 9, Romans uh, 5, 9. Since now we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You see... Real, real quick reminder, our sins are forgiven. They've been cast from the east to the west. Our sins, the past, present, future, Christ took care of all of them. It's, it's why in that, that old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, we sing out my sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. It has nothing to do with what I feel in the moment. It has nothing to do with whether I'm comforted or not. It comes down to the fact my sin, not a part of it, but in whole, has been forgiven, so it is well with me. We are clothed with God's righteousness. We are now walking in that faith under no condemnation because we are walking in a righteousness that is not our own. His grace has enabled us to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and now we have hope. We have hope of eternity. Why? Because of what Christ did for us when he died for our sins. See, what justification means is he forgave our sins, we clothed with righteousness, and he pronounces there is now no charge against us. I, I wish I was a better communicator to somehow get that point across. But you have to let God bring it to you. Because it really goes beyond our natural thinking. There is no charge against us. Here's the problem, we know ourselves. We, we do stuff every day. We're like, God, I don't know why you put up with me. I mean, we know ourselves. But yet, at the cross, our rap sheet, somehow God knew our past, present, and our future, was nailed to the cross. All the sin, everything we've ever done, everything we ever will do. And when the blood of Christ began to flow down the cross and came across our rap sheet, it covered all those things where God sees them no more. And there is no charge against us. You're like, Mike, why is that such a big deal? Because we don't get that, otherwise we'd live a whole lot differently. 
That's why Paul said in Romans 8, 1, 8, the chapter you're all waiting, we get, hope we get to soon here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can we do this this morning? I just feel like we've got to do it. Can we read this together? Come on, put your preacher voice on. You can do it this morning. Romans 8, 1, ready? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If that's you, he's talking about you. There is therefore now no condemnation. Later in that same chapter, Romans 8, 33, he says, Who? Who will bring any charge against, the, against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Oh, man, don't ever think no one's praying for you. Don't, don't ever give your grandma more props than you give Jesus. I had someone tell me, oh, I'm, I got saved because my grandma prayed for me. And I said, well, you know what? Jesus prayed for you a long time before your grandma ever prayed for you. Because he's been interceding for you from the moment he assumed the glory in heaven when he rose from the grave. We know this, but yet we come into God's presence and I see people week after week. They just have this thought that says, I've had a bad week. I've done some things. I, I can't worship God. And God can't answer my prayers. My answer to that is you're reading the wrong Bible. You've been listening to the wrong teaching. Because God, in his justification, did not say, when you feel like it, I love you. God, in his justification, said, when you get everything right, then I love you. No, God, in his justification, said, look, there are things in our past we regret, and we can all say amen to that. But by faith in Christ, we've been forgiven. It's been covered by his blood, and yet we still bring it up time after time after time and use that as an excuse that says, oh, we're far from God. You know where that comes from? That comes from the accuser of the brethren, Satan, who will never cease in his attempt to pull down what is true in your life. And yet when we get a hold of God's love, can I tell you, it only brings you down when you don't understand justification, when you don't understand reconciliation, and when you don't grasp the amazing love God has for us. That's why Paul in Romans 5, verse 10 said, For if, while we were God, God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we've now received reconciliation. I just wrote in my notes, look what the Lord has done. Reconciliation. Is there not a more beautiful picture on earth when two enemies come together and say, we're not enemies any longer? You see it in your family when Aunt Susie and Aunt Bertha hated each other over some stupid cake recipe 30 years ago, come to a reunion and finally wake up to their senses and go, you know what, this is dumb. I love you, you love me, can we just make the past the past? We've been reconciled to God. It's when we take two separate things and we put them on the same page. It's when we take two separate people, we put them on the, on the same page. You see, it's when you and me and God have been put on the same page together through the death of his son. And when he does that, we are now come to his place of, of understanding his love because through Christ's death, you and I have been clothed in the righteousness of our God. And he's so good to us. And he says, can you imagine now what would happen if we start living like God loves us? I like reading the message version of Romans. I, 
I probably read Romans right now through about six different versions of the Bible just to, just to try to, I, I say versions, understand what I mean by that, translations. It's not like we have a 2.0 out there, okay? It just means there's, there's a way to take the, the Greek language and there are scholars that bring it in a different way for us to understand it in our terminology today because the English language doesn't do good with Greek. I've taught this before. So, so we need these translations. But in the message in Romans 5, 10 will be on the screen. It says, if when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by means of his resurrection life in us. What he's saying is we've moved from sinner to friend. We've moved from powerless to a joint heir with Christ. We've moved from ungodly to a child of God. We've moved from enemy to come sit at the table and let's, let's dine together. You see, we have the family and friend program now. We are family and we are friends. Can I tell you, I have family that I'm related to that I can't necessarily say are my friends. I just don't know them that well. I've been separated from them for too many years. I have nieces, nephews, I have people I don't even know. But I have a family of God, and I am in his family. I'm loved by him. Sometimes it is stronger than the love we've ever experienced on the earth. I, I take that back. It is always stronger than what we've experienced here on this earth in our families. So Paul says in Romans 5:11, New Living Translation, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. I, I can't. My prayer has been this from the day one of the series, that we would all have an overwhelming moment where we get what God did for us, that we'd all have this moment that just shakes off all the religious junk we put on us, that, that we come to this moment where, where all these thoughts and all these sayings that people have brought and put on us over all of our lifetime fall off and we see one thing. When God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your past. He doesn't look at your failures. He's not disappointed because you had a bad day. He sees his son's blood covering your life. He sees the righteousness of Christ upon us. And because of that, he says, I love every one of you. And my love will not change. You see, when we understand God's love, we ought to be running around boasting about it. We ought to be celebrating it. We ought to be telling other people what God did for us. Why? Because he died, and he's my friend, and he wants that relationship and fellowship with me. He loved me before I ever knew him. In fact, he loved me when I was his enemy. My fist was in his face and saying, I hate you. He loved us that greatly. And he proved his love by his death. He proved his love by who he died for. He proved his love, how he relates to us. And the only question I can ask as we close this today is this, why would we ever doubt his love? Why? Because the Bible makes it clear there's no reason. Yet we say, Pastor, I don't feel like it all the time. You know why pastors are shepherds? Do you know why we kind of watch over the flock? Do you know why, why we, we try to take notice of life and who's here, who's not, and all that? Because I can almost guarantee you when someone who's been coming after God starts disappearing and is out the door when the thing is over with, and when they, they start showing up once a month instead of more times, and I tell you, it's because they bought into the lie that says they're not worthy and God doesn't love them. And instead of coming near God, they push away from the very things that represent God. And I'm, got, I'm the shepherd that's got to go out after the one. And if it takes breaking the leg, break the leg and say, come back in because you need to understand something. My God loves you. 
And there's nothing you do to make him love you less, and there's nothing you do to make him love you more. But you say, we don't feel it. Can I tell you? We don't live by feelings. We live by faith. Those who've been through the freedom class, you know this slogan so well. Choices lead, feelings follow. And I choose every day to wake up and say, my God loves me. And I'm going to live in his love. And I'm going to, yes, I'm going to do stupid things sometimes, but you know what? I'm never going to doubt his love. And when I sin, and I will, and I do, he has made a way, he said, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Why? Because he's already forgiven my sin. But my specific sins, he said, hey, bring them. Come on. Don't carry those. Don't stay in them. Just, just bring them. Confess them. It doesn't mean you start back from ground zero. It doesn't mean you start over again. He says, no, just bring those. Because I don't want anything to hinder you in this race you are on called the living, loving life of Christ. Church, I can't say it enough today. I could shout it louder, but I just pray you get it. God loves you.